The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. In tonight's talk, we're going to interweave some talking and some meditation rather than just begin with the traditional meditation session and give the talk after. Um, The title of this um, talk is Happiness and the Focused Mind. The book that I wrote called Focused and Fearless, A Meditator's Guide to States of Deep Joy, Calm and Clarity, is very much about concentrating the mind and experiencing the deep unification of the mind in concentration. But sometimes we don't experience the deeply concentrated mind. Do you ever find that your mind is distracted and that your achievements, the things that you want to do, even in simple activities in work or daily life, are thwarted because we can't maintain the focus or complete it to the end? Sometimes we just don't know the calmness and the happiness of a concentrated mind. And so most people seek to strengthen their concentration. And sometimes that's motivated by a wish to perform better in school, in work, in careers, to be able to hold more complex problems in the mind until a solution arises, until there is that creative breakthrough that happens when the mind moves from deeply concentrated experiences to the complexity of a life problem or situation. Sometimes we're motivated to deepen our concentration because we want to taste the happiness, the tranquility, the equanimity, the peacefulness, the contentment, and strengthen the resolve and clarity that are associated with the concentrated mind. The concentrated mind is a bliss-filled state. It's exquisitely pleasant, and it is considered to be the primary cause for the arising of liberating wisdom. It's one of the primary conditions that we can set in place to make ourselves prone to insight. Concentration is considered a very central feature of the contemplative life, cultivated through formal meditation practice, but also through a variety of other daily activities. Concentration brings a natural joy that arises as the mind settles and is absent of distraction. A surgeon may love surgery, not because the operating room is a particularly pleasant place to be, but because the task at hand demands complete attention. And with that wholehearted attention, the mind is filled with the delight and rapture associated with concentration. Kayakers are often enveloped in rapture, even though their bodies are cramped in little boats and their faces are splashed with freezing water. A concentrated mind is focused, unified, and stable, regardless of whether the conditions are comfortable or luxurious. As you sit, you may sometimes want to just calm the mind by using the breath, And often we'll suggest in beginning meditation classes to focus a little bit on the exhale for the first half a dozen breaths. And just as you sit here, you might breathe in and feel the breath come in. And as you breathe out, allow that breath out 
to be the focus of release and relaxation. Letting everything go as you breathe out. You might lengthen the exhale by imagining that you're breathing through a straw, slowly breathing out. And when you come to the end of the out-breath, let the in-breath come in naturally, and then focus again on the next exhale. After several breaths of this controlled breathing, then let the breath be natural and just feel the in-breath and feel the out-breath as it happens to occur. Direct your attention to feel the breath at the nostrils or upper lip area, just where the breath comes in and out from the body. Bring interest to that point of occurrence of the breath. As the texts say, ever mindful we breathe in, ever mindful we breathe out. Let the breath pass over that spot at the nostrils or upper lip. And just focus the attention there like a gatekeeper who watches at a city gate as merchants come in and out of the city, but doesn't follow the merchant into the marketplace to see what he purchases and what price he pays. Nor does the gatekeeper follow the merchant out to see what village he goes to next. But he diligently and carefully watches the gate to know all that passes in and out. So in this practice, we focus our attention at the point of occurrence of the breath. But we don't follow the breath in to experience sensations within the body. We just stay focused there and feel the breath pass. Thank you. 
the approach to developing concentration that I share in my recent book, Focused and Fearless, centers around meditation techniques that have been preserved in the Pali Canon of the Buddhist tradition. When a person establishes a calm abiding during meditation, the beneficial effects will spill out into every corner of the meditator's life. For a student, they'll find that their grades improve. Creative problem solving comes more easily. Calm patience pervades a traffic jam. And one may even find that any tendency towards depression and anxiety is greatly lessened, if not eradicated. Basically, concentration brings tremendous clarity to the mind, and it brings happiness to the heart. Although there are many practical benefits of concentration that improve our daily life experience, the Buddha was not concerned with improving our productivity as a part of the workforce, nor in increasing our worldly achievements. He harnessed the power of a unified mind and transformed a conventional practice of concentration into a catalyst for awakening, for uprooting the very causes of suffering in the mind. In the Pali language of the Buddhist scriptures, samadhi is the term that is most often translated into English as concentration. Yet samadhi describes something more than the narrow focus implied by the term concentration. It is a calm unification that occurs when the mind is profoundly undistracted. Samadhi is the beautiful state of an undistracted mind, described in the Pali texts as internally steadied, composed, unified, and concentrated. These four qualities indicate that samadhi is not merely focused on a single object. It is a state of profound serenity that encompasses a balanced, joyful composure, expressing the natural settledness of undistracted awareness. Concentration can range from the relatively undistracted focus that permits us to complete a report at work or comprehend a complex problem in our daily life to the refined states of sublime concentration where the object of concentration is the mind itself. This meditative technology of intense concentration leads to sublime states of mental absorption known as jhana. In jhana, attention is not distracted by stray thoughts nor affected by the flutter of moods. Even physical sensations and sounds eventually fade as the mind becomes entirely immersed in a single coherent focus. A sequence of four traditional states of absorption, called the four jhanas, are states of happiness that can radically transform the heart. They reshape the mind and imbue consciousness with enduring joy and ease and they provide an inner resource of tranquility that surpasses every conceivable sensual pleasure. Their states of deep rest, rejuvenation, and profound comfort that create a stable platform for transformative insight. Throughout the development of jhana, we intertwine the calming aspects of concentration with the investigative aspects of insight meditation because the fruit of concentration is the freedom of heart and mind. 
Although the notion of mastering sequential stages of deep meditative absorption might appear daunting at first, the jhana system is actually easy to follow. It's surprisingly simple and sequential. Traditionally, it is not reserved for special people and it's not restricted to the monastic order. Even during the Buddha's day, lay disciples and busy merchants would, from time to time, enjoy the benefits and joys of jhanic abiding. It's not only for incredibly advanced meditators. Diligent beginners will benefit from the stability and strength afforded by deep concentration, and seasoned meditators will find in jhana practice a potent method for intensifying insight. These states of stable concentration remain readily accessible to us as contemporary practitioners if we can find a little time for retreat, remain ethically clear, and learn to work skillfully with balanced effort. So this new book, Focused and Fearless, emerged from a 10-month silent retreat that I attended in 2003 to 2004 because the focus of this practice was using jhana as a basis for insight. Now, before I attended this retreat, I had more than 20 years of meditation experience, but I had not used this method of establishing the deep absorptions and then using them as a basis for insight. And when I did, I was surprised at the powerful effect that it had on my consciousness. I would say that one of the more lasting effects was simply the experience of unremitting happiness. When I emerged from this retreat, I shared some of my experiences with friends, and I realized that the exploration and the insights gleaned from this retreat described a very clear path of concentration and wisdom that has not been addressed from a very practical perspective in Western literature. So with this book, I want to offer practitioners the method for attaining this unwavering happiness and the joys of experiencing a deeply stable mind. It actually is within our reach, and it's something that we can all know for ourselves if we have the understanding of what conditions we need to put together in order to experience it and how to train our minds. However, the Buddha was asked, why are some people liberated and others not? You know, he didn't say that the most concentrated meditators were liberated. He replied, whosoever clings to the objects perceived by the senses cannot gain liberation. Whosoever stops clinging will be liberated. Liberation through non-clinging is the core of the Buddha's teaching. The human propensity to cling is the problem, and meditation is designed to solve it. Working in tandem, the twin practices of concentration and insight create conditions remarkably conducive to awakening. The development of right concentration in the Buddhist tradition must always be intertwined with wisdom because undertaking jhana practice without the framework of wisdom would not only be pointless, but it would contain the danger of reinforcing attachment to the exquisite pleasures of these states of jhana. So this book is an introductory guide intended to strengthen concentration by learning to overcome the restless distractions of a busy mind in daily life 
and also serve as a manual for those who will at some point in their life take some time in retreat to authentically experience these deep states of concentration for themselves. There are exercises and reflections that are included in just about every chapter that support create the creation of the conditions conducive to concentration in our lives. They train the mind to let go of distracting thoughts and to overcome the forces that hinder concentration and enhance the factors of rapture, happiness, tranquility, and equanimity that are so necessary for the development of concentration. Now, many Vipassana practitioners wonder if this is more or less the same thing as intensive Vipassana. Buddhist disciplines distinguish between the quality of samadhi that is developed through mindfulness of the changing perceptions changing objects and mindfulness and the samadhi that is developed through taking a fixed focus as one's meditative object. Usually in Vipassana practice, we use the breath as the primary object and we notice the changing sensations of the breath. We feel with tremendous precision the tingles, the pressure, the vibration, how they increase, how they decrease, the pulsing, the throbbing, the intensity of heat and cold, and how the temperature fluctuates. The meticulous sensitivity to physical variation can bring with it a tremendous strength of mindfulness and a precise clarity that is supportive for insight practice. We can observe how sights and smells trigger memories and how those thoughts might trigger emotions and how we might feel those in the body. So we observe the interaction of mind and body with mindfulness practice. Through intensive mindfulness practice, as a continuity of mindfulness develops, perhaps in retreat or through a steady daily practice, we develop the kind of samadhi that is called momentary concentration. In Pali, it's called kanaka samadhi. And this is when the mind momentarily collects, but then it disperses because the flow of its object is change. And so as the experience changes, the concentration develops, disperses, develops, and disperses. Ajahn Shah called this kind of concentration, this momentary concentration, he compared it to taking a walk Resting, walking, and resting. The journey is periodically interrupted with the arising of thought, but it's undisturbed because in a short time we continue the journey. So developed through a a continuity of mindfulness, momentary concentration can grow very, very strong, and it can bring with it many of what are called the jhanic factors, which include rapture, happiness, and deep states of calmness. But momentary samadhi is not the focus of my book. I've narrowed the focus of this book to working with a fixed object for the concentration because it is with using a fixed object that the next two kinds of samadhi can be established which lead to jhana. The purity of mind that is produced at the threshold to jhana is called access concentration. And the complete absorption into that jhanic state is called jhana. 
to attain the stage of access to jhana, we simply, we can use the breath as the primary object, but we don't highlight the changing nature of the experience the way we would in a vipassana practice. The basic occurrence of the breath is the object for the meditation, not the dynamic flow of changing sensations. As concentration deepens, the physicality of the breath diminishes and the expression of a steady mind comes to the fore and that becomes the predominant object for the meditation. For some practitioners, this will manifest as the occurrence of a bright light in awareness or a subtle field of vibrations in the mind. As samadhi deepens, the mind gradually withdraws from its orientation to the sensory world and it stays within the sphere of mental objects. Sensory orientation is, of course, a deeply ingrained function of, the, of a healthy human, human perception. It plays a valuable role because we're animals. We orient to the environment. It structures social relations. It's part of the development of ourselves as human beings. However, there's a critical stage in the practice of concentration when this possibility for absorption develops and we have an opportunity to, for a period of time, withdraw our orientation from the field of sensory perceptions. When we do so, we can enter jhana. They are altered states of perception because they are not oriented towards seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, or discursive thought. With this access to jhana, this strong concentration, the object for concentration shifts from the perception of the physicality of the breath to the subtle experience of the mind knowing the breath. And this may be reflected or perceived of as this bright and clear light. These include these aspects of mind that accompany the development of concentration include factors of pleasure, focus, mindfulness, happiness, and equanimity. So in access to jhana, attention dwells consistently in relationship to these positive and pleasant mental qualities. So Ajahn Chah compared access to jhana to wandering about inside your own home. Consciousness is completely at ease within the confines of this comfortable arena. Attention doesn't, doesn't wander away from the meditation object. Thinking might still arise, but only about the meditative experience. Light, wispy thoughts can arise, but they will be about the meditation process. They won't be about the past or the future or some story in our lives or some person that we met. They will be about our relationship to the meditation object. A little bit more energy, a little bit less. Is the mind getting a little tired, close? Is it bright? It'll be about the perception of the object itself. And the mind will feel tremendously pure because it will be far away from the hindrances of desire and aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. As this condition develops, this access to jhana strengthens, we might sense that there is an opportunity to deepen the practice, to enter into the next level of samadhi, into 
the jhana itself, the first jhana. Now, several conditions have to come together for absorption to be possible. And the first is that the mind needs to be calm and virtually thought-free. Now, like I said, there could still be these tiny little thoughts that have to do with our relationship to the meditative experience, but there really will not be anything that we would call a story about our lives. And the hindrances will be far away. And several jhanic factors will be strongly developed. Those include the directing of attention, vitaka in Pali, the sustaining of attention, the Pali term for that is vichara, and then rapture, pleasure, and delight, which is called in Pali piti, and then happiness and contentment, which is called sukha, and one-pointed attention, which is called ekagata. Some systems include equanimity right from the beginning, which is upeka. Others don't discuss that until the fourth jhana. The strength of these jhanic factors will continue to grow as the hindrances diminish. And the mind will start to feel as though there's a safe place to rest here. There's a sense that ah, I can let down, I can release, I can let go. When the mind abandons its contact and orientation with the senses, including discursive thinking and the story of my life, then the concentration of absorption into jhana may begin. Here the mind is utterly still and it is focused entirely upon its chosen object, which is the breath or at that point the light that is the reflection of the breath. Rapture, pleasure, Equanimity may accompany the bright, radiant mind while attention is continually focusing toward the place where the breath is known, this place around the nose or the upper lip. In jhana, attention feels as though it is merged into its object and it creates an impression of complete unification. Even if there is a loud sound in the room or some strong sensation in the body, it will feel as though the mind is completely unmoved by it. Sensory contact, even strong pain and loud noises, cannot disturb the tranquility or affect the unification of the mind with its objects in jhana. It's almost as though you don't hear anything, and yet the capacity of hearing isn't at all impaired. It might be as though we don't feel anything, and yet the body belief processes are functioning perfectly. There may or may not be an awareness of that impact of sound and sensation, but in either case, the mind lets go so automatically that there is no residue to disturb the concentration, to pull our attention off of its object. Because the mind is so still that even pain won't disrupt the meditation, then jhana can be sustained for very, very long periods of time. It's in jhana. It's when you hear of meditators sitting for six, eight hours without getting up, they are very probably in jhana. Because one can easily sit for long periods of time when the mind is absorbed in this incredibly peaceful happy, rapturous state of calm tranquility. Although the depth of detachment is often challenging to attain 
in order to experience the seclusion of the first jhana and taste this deep happiness of mind. Once the first jhana is established, the rest of the system really unfolds quite effortlessly. The hard part is no doubt the establishing of the first jhana. And then after that, it's clear sailing. Of course, that makes sense because in order to attain the first jhana, you have to let go of all those hindrances. <laughs> that's always the hard work in meditation. Once that's done and the mind abides in these states of clear, happy, calm, then the system unfolds sequentially and naturally. When the meditation session ends and one emerges from jhana, the concentrated state is going to fade. However, the deeply concentrated states do affect our consciousness. They incline our minds toward an ease of focusing any time we want. They bring lasting expressions of happiness to our mind. And they make the experience of letting go easy. Some people will criticize the practice of jhana, say, saying things like, you know, time is short, you should practice only insight meditation, you should practice vipassana, because you never know when you're going to die. <laughs> and insight practice is liberating. Jhana practice may not be liberating. And although I agree that the central aim of all meditative endeavors is liberating wisdom, the benefits of concentration I cannot underestimate. They provide a stable and clear foundation in order to explore the deeper layers of mind. Because without samadhi, without deep concentration, we can have a certain level of insight. But a distracted mind will primarily have insights around the things that distract it. Basically, we'll be limited to personal insights of our particular patterns and habits. Without samadhi, our insights stay at a superficial level. It's helpful. We'll see our tendencies. We'll see our personal patterns. And it's useful to help improve our lives. But it's unlikely to point to the deepest roots of suffering. Using deep samadhi as a platform for insight lets us cut at the roots of obstruction, getting so much deeper than is possible for an unstable mind. When the Buddha described his practice when he sat under the Bodhi tree, the record of that sequence of meditation was that he went through the four jhanas before his experience of enlightenment. It's an integral part of the Buddhist path of awakening. So in this concentration practice, we establish a very simple task. We choose one object for our meditation and we give our attention to that. The method that I teach uses the breath as the primary object for the meditation, focusing on this experience of the breath between the nose and the upper lip. And if the mind wanders off, we simply bring it right back there. As time goes on, we find the mind doesn't wander off, but maybe our attention just reduces 
a little bit. Our, 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 our energy weakens and we bring more penetrative quality, more settled experience. Maybe we find that there's just a little tension around it and so we release into it again and again. So at first, there will be this experience of the mind wandering off and coming back. But after a while, you'll find you won't be missing any breaths. So we start to refine the concentration more and more and more and more so that we increase the factors of focus and happiness and and, um, all the factors associated with concentration while working with the breath as the object. So let's let's meditate for a little bit. Check your posture, see that it's comfortable. Adjust if you feel like you want to move a little bit. And then feel how the body settles in the sitting posture. Feel the contact with the floor. Feel the contact with the chair. Feel where your hands rest. And sense the alignment of the spine. So you sense the posture that you've taken and you establish your mindful awareness within that posture. First, feel the whole breath. Feel the body breathing. Notice how you experience the breath as a physical object, a physical perception. You might feel the chest rising and falling, the belly expanding and contracting. Have this undeniable experience of sitting and breathing. Then let the attention settle on this place at the nostrils or upper lip. And sense where in that area you feel the breath. And start with it as a physical experience. Some people will feel the breath more at the nostrils, some at the upper lip. It really depends on the shape of your face, you know, the structure of your bones. And use the clarity of that physical sensation to be sure that you're directing your attention to this point, this place. Let the breath come naturally. Let it the body breathe in and out. It doesn't matter if it's a long breath or a short breath. Just feel the breath as it passes through that gate and establish your presence there, your attention there like a gatekeeper. If the attention drifts off into thoughts, gently bring it back to the breath. The mind may probably stray many times.
simply choose alertness. No need to waste time judging ourselves for drifting in thought. Just strengthen the wish to be present and focused. The gatekeeper on duty at the gate. Attention is not developed by riveting our attention to the breath with superglue. Attention becomes unwavering by the consistent willingness to gently begin again. If thoughts arise, talk back to the mind for a moment. Just say, this is not the time for that thought. Right now, I'm focusing on the breath. I'll think about you later. For a lot of thoughts, I say, "Mm, that's not my business. Or, that's not real. It's not happening. It only takes a quick glance at our thoughts to know whether or not they really require our attention. Most of them don't. So find ways to talk back to your mind. Discover ways to set aside distracting thoughts without anger, without recriminations. Find ways to conserve your energy and focus it on the task at hand so that we diligently give our attention to the breath. Not with any kind of force. It feels to me as though it's a devotion to the breath. There's a quality of heartfulness, of love, of presence, of love, of cultivating the mind. So we establish ourselves as that gatekeeper, observing the breath. Diligent in our duty. Not missing a breath.
Now you might begin to count the breaths. One of the techniques that we use is we breathe in and we breathe out naturally at whatever pace the breath comes. But then we count one and then we let the next in-breath come and we let the next out-breath go and we count two. And we count up to ten breaths and then we feel the inhale and we feel the exhale and then we count nine. We feel the inhale, we feel the exhale, and we count eight, down to one, up to ten, down to one, up to ten, down to one.
you have only one duty. Stay at that gate. Observe the breath. for some discussion about concentration practice. This basic exercise of just observing the breath is the suggested practice that we do every day to take 20 to 60 minutes a day to just sit and focus on the breath. If we can stay with the breath, mindfully breathing in, mindfully breathing out, fine, great. But if we find that we wander off, then to use the counting Because it's a preliminary practice that helps bring us back to the breath. Because we can know whether or not we slipped off. And then there are a variety of other counting techniques that help refine the awareness. But this is basically where we begin. Then as the practice develops, like if we're practicing in retreat or have a very strong daily practice, then we would work with different factors that arise in the meditation, learning to strengthen the focus and to, um, to explore these different states of mind that create, um, first of all, the conditions for, for absorption for jhana, the strengthening of concentration, the freedom from the distractions. And then once we can establish absorption, we then work with techniques to attain what's called mastery around those states, the ability to enter and exit at will without trouble or difficulty, as the texts say. And then to, um, to move between and within the states as, we, um, um, as is appropriate. Then, to u- then we learn how to use each of the absorption states as a basis for insight. So there's all these different sort of things that circle around the concentration practice. But the initial instruction is as simple as that meditation. We focus on the breath. Are there some questions, comments, discussion? I know some of you have done some concentration practice and some jhana practice, so um, it might be interesting to discuss them. Um, extended periods of meditation can sometimes bring about And uh, one of the experiences is um, lucid dreaming and Another is um, a kind of a, a trend, and um, I recall a lecture that was given by a teacher, I, and I attended the lecture, and he, and he, I, I, he had mentioned the uh, um, some of the experiences and uh, referred to them as um, mental fatigue. And uh, I, of course, I, I realized that. Well, certainly that must be it. I, I, I you know, uh, sitting for long periods of time, um, you know, concentrated. I'm, I must uh, be, 
and delusion and and uh, and uh, com- you know just because many of these states that you talk about are certainly not our common experience. No, they're altered states. But you bring up a couple of interesting points. Um, the first is the use of the term trance-like state. Um, because when the texts, um, when the Pali texts were originally translated into English a little over a hundred years ago, um, one of the first attempts to find an English word for jhana, for these four states of jhana, was trance. But it was very quickly abandoned in the subsequent translations because it doesn't describe the state at all. It was really um, an attempt of scholars to try to understand what the states were, but it doesn't describe the state from a practitioner's sense. So it it has confused people's understanding of these states um, because um, it just they are not trances in that sense, of in the sense of being. there is basically there is nothing dull or uncontrolled about those states. They are called in the Pali text, the discourse, the discourses of the Buddha. They are called controlled perceptions. We don't just like fall into them. They are choices that we make in how we incline our intentions. And so they become a very clear path that is used. So there's a real strong clarity about them. There's very incredibly strong energy in the jhanas. I usually feel as soon as I've entered the first jhana, it's like being plugged into some kind of a, like a power plant sort of thing. I don't know. It's just like unending energy. And that's because of the strength of the jhanic factors, in particular the, um, the, the, well, the strength of the jhanic factors and the absence, the, the presence of, 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 of rapture, pleasure, delight, happiness, and the absence of anything pulling the energy away, like craving or desire or aversion or reactivity or distraction or all of the things that waste our energy and thought and preference and personality and all of those things. But when, they, when they're gone, there's a, a, a presence of um, vital energy that is present. But because I think because of these translations, people who haven't really explored the system pick up different parts from the texts and these translations that use the term um, um, trance-like, and then they think of strong concentration. And, and I've heard people describe states which, to me, are absolutely a clear description of the hindrance of sloth and torpor as being the first jhana. And I think it's that kind of thing is sometimes a misunderstanding because the calmness that arises um, in um, as we develop strong concentration, if the energy goes out of balance, when concentration gets really strong, the mind can very easily go from intense states of deep concentration with rapture, with, all the, with the jhanic factors and the, the rapture and happiness, and then slide into a kind of a slothful state, a kind of a dull state, um, because the concentration wasn't in balance with the, um, with the arousing factors of, of, um, of rapture and happiness. Um, the, the, the state of jhana, though, is very alert. There is nothing dull about it. There is nothing sleep-like about it. 
It's absolutely crystal clear and responds entirely to our intention. So there's an alertness in it. Mindfulness is present in all of the jhanas. It's not like a blank space where we enter and then we come out and we think what happened. We're not in relationship to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching into the physical senses. Nor are we in relationship to the thoughts that take the form of discursive thinking. My past, my future. Those have been abandoned. But mindfulness is absolutely clear. So we will be totally aware of every single moment of that absorption. It'll just be we will be aware moment by moment by moment again and again of that meditation object and of that quality of mind. So mindfulness will be keen. It will be precise. It will be present. But it just won't be um, 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 in relationship to the sensory experience. So sometimes um, these, because it's subtle, Um, And there's been some of these odd translations over the centuries trying to find the right words to describe it. Sometimes they get kind of confused. It's not uncommon to hear people confuse a a slothful state, which has dullness in it, and there isn't precise mindful clarity with a jhanic state, because sometimes the mind will drop into that sloth right after very strong concentration. But that's an imbalance of energy. It's not the absorption that, is pra- that this practice e- explores. So there's a lot of precision in this path. Um, factors that develop and practices that we go through. So that it becomes, um, this practice of jhana is very predictable. It's very de- de- defined steps. That once somebody attains the jhana, they, they will have known what they what what conditions preceded it. And by reestablishing those same conditions, we'll be able to attain it again. If somebody in a retreat tells me that they attained the first jhana, I would totally expect that they could reattain that jhana in the next sitting and the one after that and the one after that and the one after that for as long as they wished. In fact, I wouldn't even consider it jhana until they had been able to repeat it and sustain it in every sitting for quite some days. So there is this controlled aspect to it. There is this, it's not in terms of like tight control, it's predictable, it's a path. There are conditions that give rise to this. And we know those conditions, we see the mind mindfully establishing those conditions, and then we reestablish them. So this path has been described in the texts, in the Buddhist texts, again and again as, a, as this system that one does to train the mind. They aren't like altered states that kind of happen to us or that we're kind of like innocently meditating and the next thing you know we're pulled into the whatever jhana. It, that's not the way it is. We train the mind to attain these and then we use them for insight practice. It's kind of like sharpening the mind, like sharpening a pencil, and then using it to write. We sharpen the mind with concentration, and then we use it for insight practice. Did you want to follow that up? I'm not sure if I responded exactly to what you were asking. It, it does seem that uh, once, uh, um it would fall away when the concentrate, when you leave your 
meditative state when you arise and you, you, and, uh, you go on about your business. You will not be in jhana when you go about your business. Yes, not possible. Simply because, again, the objects are changing. Seeing, you know, you turn your head, you're seeing, 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 seeing different things. The object of perception is changing. So where's the absorption? The quality of absorption, which defines jhana, is a fixed object. So if you move your attention from the breath to your knee or to your elbow, the way that you would in vipassana practice, a sound comes and you're mindful of hearing, a sensation in the knee comes and you're mindful of tingling and pulling and throbbing. It's a different orientation to experience in the jhana practice because you choose a fixed object. That's the defining part of the, part of the def- definition of the absorption is that fixed object. So if you're walking around in daily life, there can be no absorption because there isn't a repeating object that the mind will absorb into. There isn't a fixed object. There can be strong concentration but the most the, the 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 category that it would fall into, if it was very very strong, like what you get when you get really concentrated on a long retreat doing like walking meditation, the objects are continuously changing. It would be kanaka samadhi. It would be that momentary concentration. It can get very strong, and the jhanic factors will be present, but not the jhanic state of absorption. That requires the fixed object. Since um, when we leave this building, there won't be any fixed objects about. Right, 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 right. So what we do is we blend ways of developing concentration and all of the things that we have to do to kind of create the conditions for concentration. And we practice all of those in our daily life. But then at some point, you may take some time to go on a retreat And then in the quiet of a retreat, you'll have time to settle in and explore the deep states of jhana. No, you are not going to be in jhana coming to a meditation group once a week or something like that. But you can incorporate um, a lot of the exercises that help to free the mind from distractive thinking, from um, the hindrances, from... Um, learning, keep training the mind to let go, um, balancing effort. It's like the first half of this book is more like things you can do in daily life. And then there's one section that is really only appropriate in retreat. And that's the how to establish the absorptions. So there's, you know, section, I think it's section three. You, know, you can read it before. Most people find it fascinating. But actually, if you want to do it, you have to be in retreat. But it doesn't have to be a year-long retreat. Now, I started this when I did a 10-month retreat, but it's quite fine to do it much shorter than that. No, it really is. But I do think you do have to be in retreat, some seclusion, some separation, to, um, some separation from the complexity of our daily lives in order to establish those jhanas. So about more than half the book is appropriate to daily life in one section, is like a manual to take on retreat. And so that's kind of, the thing is, if people don't prepare before they go on retreat, then they're going to be slogging through all of those things they could have been doing in their daily life practice to strengthen concentration. So I see the integration of a daily life practice with a periodic retreat to be useful for both the development of concentration and 
and insight. But there are slightly different ways we practice when we're on retreat and, and, and in daily life. Please. Oh, you want the thing. So the question was, what is absorption? It's a very good question, and I use it a lot, this term, what is the, this term of absorption? You take the, the object and you concentrate and you absorb, you absorb. And, you know, I think I get it. You know, I think I experience it, but I'm not sure. That's why I'm asking the question. Um, when you are in absorption, you, you don't know you are in absorption unless... Oh, you, you totally know. You totally know you're in absorption. You, you do know. Oh, mindfulness is absolutely clear. Yes. Mindfulness is clear. What, would, what is then? What so is it's it like... like? Um, well, it's interesting. So you're, you're speaking about using loving kindness or metta as the object. So, um, like the focus of this book is on the breath as the object. But I have done jhana practice. There are using several other objects for absorption. There is a sequence that's offered in the in the Buddhist tradition where you can use the the um, the met metta as an object or any of the Brahma Viharas as an object. I've done multiple jhana retreats based on the Brahma Viharas as objects. They are beautiful objects for jhana. I don't like to start the teaching there because when people use the Brahma Viharas as the object for absorption, then you have to sort out what part is the metta and what part is the jhana. And you're developing two things kind of simultaneously. And there's kind of a lot to explore there. But because it is a stable object, when metta arises, it is a quality. And we can give our attention to it. And the intention when we use metta as an object for jhana, it's a beautiful intention. May my mind be absorbed in loving kindness. I mean, what a beautiful intention to give our, our attention so totally to just this quality of loving kindness that the mind merges in with the loving kindness. And that is the only thing that is contacting consciousness. So it's as though consciousness and metta are totally merged, subsumed, included. It's a, it feels like an absorption. Now, you won't be saying the phrases. You won't be picturing the people. Those require other. Some, some teachers will say that you can do that in the first jhana because there's different factors that are present in different jhanas, and the first one allows a little bit more movement of mind, whereas it sequentially gets quieter and quieter. But um, certainly, it would be impossible by anybody's system to have that after the first, to have any movement of mind in terms of picturing a person or saying a phrase after the first, you know, after the first jhana. In the system that I use, that would be impossible before the first jhana. Absorption in the breath, with the breath, will be. It would be a complete absorption in the breath, in the same way with loving kindness. Now, the interesting thing is that the, the, the thing that happens when we use the breath as the object is 
a transformation of the quality of the breath has to occur. Just as our mind gets more and more refined, our perception of the breath gets more and more subtle and more and more refined. That's why at some point there's a shift and we're no longer experiencing the sensations of coolness and heat, of pulsing and throbbing. The physical sensations, we're experiencing the breath as a pervasive light. That light is a stable object, whereas those sensations are not. If we are feeling sensations of the breath, we're not near absorption. But when we're knowing the breath as this um, transformed mental image, and yet it's still the breath, it's not like a light that has taken us out. It's not like an other light. It's still it's the mental reflection of that of that breath. Then the absorption becomes possible because it's an absorption into that mental expression. The mind there are only certain there are only certain things that the mind that absorption is possible in, and only to certain levels, like because depending upon the effect of that object. So changing experiences like sensations, there'll be no absorption because of the changing quality. Loving kindness can take the mind up to the third absorption the first, second, and third jhanas, but it doesn't go to the fourth because of the presence within loving kindness of the factors of happiness which are abandoned at the third level. Then the fourth jhana is characterized by equanimity, profound stillness and equanimity. So upeka as the equanimity, as the Brahma-vihara, can, can go to the fourth jhana, but netta can't. So the character of the object affects consciousness, which is part of why it's interesting to play with the system, because the different traditional objects that we use have a different effect on consciousness. Thank you. It's a good question. Metta is a beautiful practice. It's a very, very, very beautiful practice. Steve, do you want to use the microphone? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, since you're talking about loving kindness, have you ever had an experience with meditation on 32 parts of the body? As yeah, well as jhana? I love that one. Yeah. Um, the, okay, so, so Steve is asking about another traditional object that um, one does. Um, and traditionally... According to the Visuddhimagga, you, you first establish the breath as the prime, as the focus. And so you can well, actually, no, you, you can use the casinas too. But um, I've been practicing lately with um, Pook Sayadaw, a Burmese jhanic teacher. And um, so we, um, we use the breath as the primary object, although some of what are called the casinas dominate some of the traditional teachings. You know, the, 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 the perception of earth, the perception of fire, those casinas or the colors. And he goes through a sequence where you use the breath first and then you do the 32 parts of the body. And so there's a list of head, hairs, body, hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidney, all, all the way through the list. Okay, so there's these 32 parts and what you do is you first reflect on them. You see them, perceive them in terms of color, shape, location, etc. And then you can... Perceive, and so you can get up to access by perceiving the characteristics of each part. To attain jhana, you can take the 32 parts only up to the first jhana, but to obtain jhana absorption, there has to be a perception of what's called the repulsiveness 
of that of that part. And it's a very interesting shift that happens from the clarity of knowing steady, steady, steady on the part to the repulsiveness of the part. And then the mind can go into very strong and very, very stable states of jhana based upon each of the parts. So in that practice, you have to go through all the 32 parts and then you do them in sets and backwards and forwards and all of these lists to go through. What it does very interestingly is it strengthens the concentration in another way. And I found that after doing that part, that practice, um, it became, maybe it was because of the sustained first jhana, first jhana, first jhana, first jhana, I don't know, but it became so easy to enter. I mean, it was, it was amazing the effect that it had on, on knowing the way in. Yeah, I, I was in trouble with the breath, but the last long retreat I sat, uh, in the afternoon sitting period, I did 30 parts of the body. It was amazing how concentrated the mind got. Yeah. And then also after doing that, doing the breath was quite easy. Yeah, yeah. The, um, you know, the, 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 the Sudhimaga says that different character types, different people with different personality types, will find different objects easier, more suitable. So um, generally, we generally practice like systems that are kind of good for everybody. And the breath is considered sort of generally good for most people. Um, but certain character types will find that loving kindness is a really good object for them. Certain character types will find that the body parts are really, really good objects. Most people who can, do, can develop it with any, any object will learn how to develop it with any of the objects. You know, it's sort of like once you kind of get the hang of one, yeah, yeah. you can tweak it to the others, and then you can strengthen it, for, in, 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 you can strengthen your samadhi in different ways. I also found that doing insight practice out of each jhana and after different objects shifted. I would see, see I would perceive seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, which is the field where insight occurs in, in contact. I would experience those differently, depending on the object that my mind had been absorbed in. So I found it interesting to do, you know, different retreats based upon different objects. I didn't address all of those in the book. Because this is all in my in the system that I'm using. One first does the four jhanas based on the breath. After the fourth jhana based upon the breath, then a world of opportunity opens, and you have lots and lots of choices. But I figured, let's first get this far, and then then we can play with all of the the, the, the possible toys that the Buddhist tradition offers. Well, we should end soon. Was there any last question that people, some, anyone wanted to ask? Okay, last one. Would you pass the... Um? So you mentioned uh, samadhi and this fixed concentration. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the description of it sounded kind of like samatha or calm abiding. Yeah. I was wondering how they relate. Are they the same, different... I think you can relate um, samatha practice. Samadhi is a state, and samatha usually refers to different calm, you know, tranquil pra- tranquility practices, calm abiding practices. So they're pretty much in the same categories. Yeah. Yeah. Samadhi refers to the unified state of mind, whereas the, um, the, the, the samatha practices refer to different kinds of 
come, like you said, come abiding practices. Practices that emphasize this um, stability of mind, the stability of consciousness, this tranquility and calm. So in one way or another, what you find in the Buddhist tradition is you'll find all this balancing. So we'll develop samatha and also vipassana. We'll develop various ways of concentrating, calming, steadying, strengthening mind. And then we'll use that for insight, for seeing the nature of things. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep these, this balancing of, of, of insight and concentration in various forms. Thank you. Well, I'm going to be in the hall for a little while. Happy to, to talk with you or to sign books if you'd like them autographed. Um, they're, on the, they're out on the table, $20, and um, I'm delighted, and I hope you enjoy them. I will also be having a book reading at East West Bookstore, so if, you're interest, if you know anybody who's, would, who you think would benefit by this, I'd love to get these flyers out to anybody who is interested, especially somebody who meditates. I don't think that... Um, You have to have a lot of meditation experience to do this uh, practice, but I've geared the book towards people who've done a little bit of mindfulness already. So that's really the audience I'd love to get this to. I do teach, um, I will this year be teaching two jhana retreats. So if you're interested in actually practicing it in retreat, because that's really the only time that you know what it's like. Now, Shirley um, has sat a jhana retreat with me last year. So if you want to know what it's like, you, can, you did, right? Yeah, I thought so. And then you can um, talk to Shirley. But there'll be a one-week retreat in June, and there are flyers out there. And there'll also be a one-week retreat in November. So if you're interested, really, the best thing to do is to just drop into the retreat because then you'll get individual guidance and we'll, it's all individual interviews for a jhana retreat so that I can guide each person through this process. Um, and there's an array of flyers on the table if you're interested in any of the day-long events that we have in Mountain View or Campbell. So thank you all.